It is quite a long passage this morning, so bear with me. The reading this morning is from Acts 21, verse 17, to Acts 22, verse 29, if you want to follow along. So, Acts 21, verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. <clears throat> they had previously, previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. 
Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia and brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priests and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. The companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from the synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the claws of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me. Are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. This is God's word. Thank you so much for reading that um, this morning, Laura. Let's pray as we come to God's word. 
Almighty God, we pray that you would speak through your word this morning as you have promised to do. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. We pray that as we look at Paul's testimony that we might be encouraged to share our testimony as a means to witness, as a means to testify of what our great God has done in each of our lives. We pray all these things in our almighty Savior's name. Amen. I nearly knocked over someone else's water. <laughs> this morning we're continuing in the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. After this morning's message, we've just got six sermons in the book of Acts left, and that'll bring us up to the end of August. And then we're hoping to start studies in the book of Ephesians. That's very exciting. It won't have escaped your notice as we've gone through the book of Acts how often the Holy Spirit is mentioned. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 42 times in the book of Acts. This book could quite easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So it's wonderful to see that the Holy Spirit that was active in the early church in the book of Acts, leading it and giving it wisdom, is the same Holy Spirit that has led us as a church in our search for a new pastor. So please do keep praying. We really want Paul to be starting in three weeks' time. We believe that God by his Holy Spirit can do that. So please do keep praying for that. I've just divided the long passage this morning into three. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to look at verses, 20, uh, verses 17 to 26, Paul's arrival at Jerusalem. So that's our first point this morning. Paul arrives at Jerusalem. As we saw last week, the Apostle Paul and some of the Gentiles have just arrived in the city of Jerusalem. It says in verse 17 that the church in Jerusalem received them gladly. In fact, some translations say that Paul and the Gentile believers are welcomed with open arms. There's excitement. It's almost like a picture of, of brothers and sisters returning from a distance, and you've got that warm welcome. And the Apostle Paul and his friends barely have time to rest from their journey that we read the very next day after arriving in Jerusalem, they go and see James and the other elders in Jerusalem. And while he's there, Paul reports in detail what God has done, that God has saved many Gentiles. Paul has with him some of the Gentile believers, and the reaction of the elders is one of praising God. The elders in Jerusalem are overjoyed at seeing that the gospel has reached the Gentiles. But then things start to get more complicated. Verse 20 reads, please do leave your Bible open because we're going to be referring to the passage throughout. And it is a long one, so you probably will forget where we're up to. But verse 20 says, you see how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. So there's been thousands of Jews converted in Jerusalem, Jews that now believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're Messianic Jews, but we read that they're zealous for the law. They're still set on Judaism. And the elders basically tell the Apostle Paul, look, your reputation among the Jews is at an all-time low. The elders tell Paul that there's rumors going around the city. Some say that Paul wants the Jews to turn away from the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, in verse 21. Some of the rumors say that Paul's teaching is that the Jews should no longer get circumcised. Now, Paul taught that circumcision added nothing to your salvation, but some of the Messianic Jews still did it as a custom. 
And as a result of Paul's reputation being bad, the elders say to Paul, look, there's these four men who've made a vow. We want you to go with them to the temple. We want you to join in their purification rites, and we want you to pay their expenses as a way of proving that you want people to live in accordance to the Jewish law. If the Apostle Paul does this, the elders believe that everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about Paul and these rumors. But if he does this, they believe it will show that he's living in obedience to the law. Now, this passage this morning, verses 17 to 26, it's a very controversial passage. A lot of the commentaries I read were, were disagreeing on what actually it means. And a lot of the controversy is over what type of vow Paul has been asked by the elders to do, what type of vow Paul has agreed to do. The Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace, not by works, that it is only the Lord Jesus Christ saves us, that we cannot contribute anything to our salvation. We can't make ourselves pure. Only the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross can cleanse away our sins. So what on earth is this purification vow that the Apostle Paul has agreed to? Well, it's a Nazarite vow. If you were to go back to number six, we would read of the Nazarite vow, and that vow was completely voluntary. It is where the person taking the vow would abstain from cutting their hair. Just for the avoidance of doubt, Ben has not taken a Nazarite vow, as far as I'm aware. But it would mean that you would abstain from cutting your hair, drinking any wine. They weren't allowed to eat any grapes or even raisins. And they were to stay away from dead bodies. And if you were to look into the meaning of that vow, it means to dedicate. So it's a voluntary vow of dedication. It's important to note that normally this vow would last for 30 days. So the Apostle Paul hasn't started out with this vow. He's just joined in towards the end and kept it for the last seven days. So this vow would be fulfilled after 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, there would be a lamb offering as a sin offering. It'd also be a ram sacrificed as a peace offering. There'd be some little cakes and a drink offering also offered. As we've gone through the book of Acts, this has already been mentioned. In Acts 18, 18. It's probably the same vow where Paul had his hair cut off because of a vow he had taken. So this Nazarite vow that Paul was doing wasn't anything that contributed to his salvation. Paul was clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he probably had done this type of vow previously. John Stott sums up this passage nicely. He says that the Apostle Paul, James, and the elders were agreed doctrinally that salvation was by grace in Christ through faith, and that ethically Christians must obey the moral law. But this issue in the passage concerned culture, ceremony, and tradition. And he comes to the conclusion that what Paul has agreed to wasn't a compromise, but a concession in the area of practice. So why does Paul fulfill this vow with these four men. What lesson can we learn from this this morning? Well, if I'm to read 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, which is what the Apostle Paul himself would write, 1 Corinthians 9, 20, here's what it says. 
to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Typical complicated Paul argument, but you get the point. And verse 22, I have become all things to all men, so that by all means possible I might save some. Paul took part in this vow, so he wasn't a stumbling block to the Jews coming to faith in Christ. He doesn't want to be the reason that people give that they aren't believing in Jesus. No, to the Jews he became as a Jew. He doesn't compromise, not one bit. He's able to discern between the essential and the non-essential things. And he wants to show to others as well that he respects the leadership of James and the other elders in the Jerusalem church. And sometimes this morning we have to make that judgment call as well, discerning between the essential and the non-essential. If it's not a salvation issue at stake, then sometimes we have to become all things to all men to win souls for Christ so long as it doesn't compromise the gospel on which we stand. For fellowshipping with Christians, becoming all things to all men, may mean fellowshipping with people that have a different interpretation of the book of Revelation than us. That might be what it looks like. It might mean fellowshipping with those people that have a different view on end times. As long as you both believe that Jesus is coming back again, then that's the important thing. It may mean having differences over which translations of the Bible are used in Sunday worship. But don't hear Paul wrong. He most definitely teaches that we're to search the Scriptures, treat them as our ultimate authority, and of the Bible as our only source of truth. But Paul does show us that there are things that we can disagree on, but still fellowship together regardless. So this vow that Paul took was not a salvation issue, but Paul was trying to be all things to all men. What does that mean for us, becoming all things to all men so that we can win the lost for Christ? What does that mean for us this morning? It may mean taking up a common interest with a non-Christian. It might mean becoming interested in carpet bowls to win older Christians for Christ. Becoming all things to all men may mean spending more time in the things that you wouldn't normally be interested in so that you can share the gospel. But it's not just for the sake of doing it. There's a purpose. Because the overriding theme is one of love. The motivation is that by God's grace, some might be brought to saving faith. And Paul's motivation for taking this vow and becoming all things to all men was a good one. It was out of love. And it was out of a desire that the word of God would spread. So did it work? Did the Apostle Paul taking this vow succeed? No. Spectacularly not. It was so bad a plan that Paul is arrested. So bad a plan in man's eyes. Not in God's. It was all in God's plan. Paul's arrested in verses 27 to 40. The Jews stir up the crowd and seize him. They spread rumors again that the Apostle Paul has done things that he hasn't. They accuse him of defiling the temple. 
It says in verse 30 that the whole city comes from all directions. It's like a scene from high school where someone shouts, fight! And people come running from all directions because they want to see someone get, get in a hiding. And people come from all directions to see the Apostle Paul. He gets dragged from the temple. The gates are shut. And in verse 31, it says, while they are trying to kill him. That's, there's no mess in here, is there? This crowd, mean, this crowd mean business. They're calling out for blood, so much so that the commanders, the commander and soldiers have to intervene. Verse 22 tells us that when the rioters saw the commander coming, they stopped beating Paul, and the Apostle Paul is eventually taken into the barracks. And Paul asks for permission from the commander to address the crowd and receives it. And he stands with his arms outstretched and addresses the crowd in their own language. Let's move on to our second point. Paul witnesses to the crowd. Verses, verse 1 of chapter 22 to verse 21. And Paul starts to share his testimony. He starts off in verse 1 addressing the crowd as brethren and fathers. This is the mob that we have just read. We're in the middle of trying to kill Paul and had to be stopped by Roman soldiers. But he doesn't call them his enemies. They considered themselves his enemy, but Paul doesn't consider them his enemy. And that difference makes the people listening listen. He shows them that he's willing to offer them respect and love. And he addresses the crowd in their own language, in Aramaic, and he finds common ground with them. Verse 3, I am indeed a Jew. He mentioned that he was taught by this famous Rabbi Gamaliel. And then he starts to tell his story, his conversion story, his testimony. He tells his story in a gripping way. He tells it in an honest way. He doesn't try to pretend that he was someone that he wasn't. He's very clear and honest that he used to persecute the followers of the way. His testimony doesn't try and paint himself in some sort of perfect light. Far from it. He's clear that he needed God's forgiveness. And his language is simple. If you were to read Galatians or Romans or any of the books written by Paul, you would realize quite quickly this is a clever guy. This is an intellectual. But he carefully avoids any carefully constructed arguments. He tells his hearers in the simplest possible language what God has done for him, revealing the risen Jesus to him on the road to Damascus. Before we go any further, that's surely the way we should share our testimony, in the simplest possible way. The very best defense of the faith is the testimony of men and women who have experienced the transforming power of God's saving grace and know it. Throughout the book of Acts, we have looked at how important it is to share what Christ has done in our lives. And this is another, sharing our testimony, how we've been converted. To be a good witness for Christ, saved sinners must simply tell other sinners what they know. It's like the story of the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. 
Jesus healed him going to the pool of Siloam. And the, the Pharisees in that passage in John 9, they're trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. They don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so they interrogate the man. The man. And in John 9:25, the blind man responds, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. That's a testimony. This man who was blind simply says, I was blind, but now I see. I perhaps don't know all the arguments, but one thing I know, I was a sinner and Christ saved me. I was lost, but now I am found. I can't carefully construct arguments in the way maybe you can, but I was lost and now I am found. I was far from God, but now I am one of his children. That's a testimony. Maybe you're sat here this morning afraid that your testimony won't, won't stand up to scrutiny. What if someone questions my testimony? It says to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies in you. But remember, it's your story. It doesn't have to stand up to the same scrutiny. Because it's your story. It's what Christ has done in your life. What if a testimony isn't interesting enough to share? It's the best story in the world when you are far, enough, far off and Christ brought you near. And Paul in this passage in Acts 22, his testimony is like the blind man. He goes into a bit more detail than I was blind, but now I see. In fact, Paul in his Apostle Paul way spends 20 verses explaining his testimony. But it's the same concept. He describes how a great light from heaven shone around him. Paul was a determined persecutor of Christians. He hated Jesus until this heavenly light shone on him. It's as if Paul was saying, I was like you until Jesus met me. I was like you until I had an encounter with Jesus. And Paul continues telling his story right up until verse 20. And then something changes. Man, does it change? Paul in verse 21, he tells of how God told him, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And then things change. Paul had them listening. They were hanging on his every word. But then it changes. When he uses those words that God told him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The mob rise up. Verse 22, they shout, away with such a fellow. This man isn't fit to live. This mob weren't prepared to receive the good news of the Lord Jesus themselves. They weren't prepared to entertain the thought that God might have told Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This crowd that had tried to kill Paul and then listened to his whole sermon, his whole testimony, erupted into rage over one word, Gentiles. You see, Paul's message was that God saves Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul's testimony was the same message that Jesus brought. You may come to God just as you are. Jew, Gentile, foreigner, rich, poor, addicted, debased, come exactly as you are. But you must come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come God's way. Because Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except 
through him. The Jews didn't have a problem with Gentiles becoming Jews. But they were incredibly offended at the thought of Gentiles becoming Christians in the same way that Jews became Christians because it implied that Jews and Gentiles were equal, coming to God on the same terms. Paul testified to Christ's saving power that you can come just as you are to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you realized that this morning? Christ doesn't want you to become a better person first. He doesn't want you to try and clean up your life before you come to him. He says, come exactly as you are and let me transform you and give you a new heart and a new life. The Apostle Paul didn't try to clean up his life before he became a Christian. Christ saved him on the road to Damascus and then he became a new creation. And that's the same for you this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, come exactly as you are. Come whether you're English, Irish, Dutch, or African. Come and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior because it's his work and he can and will transform your life. There's no point in trying before you're saved to become a better person because only the work of the Holy Spirit can transform your life. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, let's be willing to share our testimony as a means of sharing the life-transforming power of God. Maybe you're one of those people like me who got saved when they were young in life. It's not spectacular, but it's still a wonderful story of what God has done. It's not a Damascus Road experience, but it's spectacular nonetheless if you're a Christian. Every angel in heaven rejoices over each soul that Christ saves. doesn't matter whether you're five years old or a grown-up. The angels rejoice because it's still a soul. And it's important to tell others your wonderful testimony of God's saving grace. Whether you've been a Christian ten years or one year, you should be telling others your conversion story as a means to reach them for the lost. Let's move on to our final point. Paul, the Roman citizen. Verses 22 to 29. I'm sorry that my original PowerPoint was wrong in the first slide. Thank you for keeping reading, Laura. But verses 29, 22 to 29. Paul, the Roman citizen. So the Apostle Paul tells the Jews that God has brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And it causes the mob in quite a dramatic fashion, to rip off their clothes. They fling dust in the air. They want nothing to do with this man or this man's savior. And the commander of the Roman garrison has to stand in, and he commands that Paul is bound and lashed. And while Paul is getting bound, in verse 25 we read that the the apostle Paul asks the centurion a question. Is it lawful for you to scourge? a Roman citizen. Are you really going to lash a Roman before you even know what he's done? And when the commander hears that in verse 29, we read that they immediately withdrew from him. And the commander was afraid because he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. As we've covered before in Acts, under Roman law, no Roman citizen could be chained, scourged, or killed without a proper trial. And failure to 
adhere to any of those rules would result in severe punishment. Ultimately, God used Paul's Roman citizenship to spread the gospel to Rome. And Paul didn't back away from using his Roman status, his Roman citizenship, as protection. Paul was willing to appeal to the law of man. And as I prepared this message, it got me thinking. Often Christians are persecuted in the UK for their faith, and they don't say anything. And there are times when that's the right course of action. It says in the Bible that blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Sometimes it's right to be quiet when oppressed because that goes with the territory of being a Christian. In fact, the Apostle Paul didn't always pull the Roman citizenship card as a way to protect himself. Back in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are arrested and flung into prison, they're stripped and beaten, and they don't say anything about the Roman citizenship until after they're beaten. There are times that we just have to accept that being a Christian will invite scorn, and sometimes even abuse. Being a Christian means that you're going to have a target on your back. Being a Christian means that people cannot stand what you live for. Every day when you go into work, your life is a witness to them. You're different, and people don't like that. Your life is a challenge to them because every day you walk before them, it shows them that their life isn't right before God. Now, the Apostle Paul suffered more than most for the sake of the gospel. There were times when he didn't use his Roman citizenship as a means to protect himself. Sometimes he kept silent about it, but sometimes he did use the law for his protection. There are times, like in verse 25, when he did use the law for his defense. And there are times when we as Christians need to do that too. We've just finished a full month of pride celebrations where the LGBT lobbyists tell us that everyone in this entire country should celebrate LGBT ideology, and if you don't, you're a bigot and you're a homophobe. And we as Christians have got a choice when something like this comes up. We can become like the world and celebrate this, or I can take my stand as a Christian and say, no, I cannot celebrate this. This goes against what God teaches in the Bible. And it's easy to become frightened and think to ourselves, well, we can't speak the truth any longer. It's easy to be frightened. But actually, often the law is on our side. The law says that I cannot be compelled to say something that I do not believe. The law says that I cannot be forced to believe in something. Article 10 of European law says that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and the religion. And religion. You have the right to think what you want, have your own conscience, and practice your religion free from interference. We have that right as Christians. And when we face these situations in work and life, we are to be loving. We're to have love and grace seasoned with salt. But we can be like the Apostle Paul using the law as our defense. The Apostle Paul used Roman law in his defense. But remember back in verse 37, the Apostle Paul asks for permission from the commander before he even shares his testimony. Just to be courtesy, 
There's to be politeness and respect. Doing that meant that the Apostle Paul had the opportunity to share his testimony. Before we dive in to share our testimony with people in work or people that we know disagree, it might be a good idea to ask them, are you okay if I share my story of what Christ has done in my life? Because they may not want that. There are times when you do it anyway, but you have to show politeness and respect. I know it's tricky when your job's on the line or it feels that way. And it's easy for me working in a Christian organization, although I haven't always, to get up here and say these things. But there are tens of thousands of Christians who think the same way as we do. One of the devil's tactics is to try and isolate us as Christians. The devil tries to make us think that we are the only people that hold to a particular view in the Bible. But actually, we're not. There are thousands and tens of thousands in the UK of people in the UK that are holding to these things. Paul used the law for his defense. We can be confident and speak out if it's done with politeness and respect. Now, ultimately, ultimately, the Almighty God didn't want the Apostle Paul to be beaten or to die for the gospel on this occasion. God had other plans. His plan was to bring Paul before Rome to preach the gospel there so that thousands more would hear of his wonderful grace and love and mercy. The thousands more would hear of the love of Jesus who loved them so much that he died the just for the unjust. The same God that kept Paul in the midst of this situation until his plan was fulfilled is the same God that will keep you as you witness for him. God has awesome plans for you. Big plans. This side of eternity, you might not see some of the big and awesome plans. They might not seem big or awesome. But when you look back from eternity, you will see a God that used you in ways that you couldn't imagine or even know about. As you look back from eternity, you will see how God answered prayer that you forgot a prayer that you'd even forgot that you'd prayed. You'll see a God that answered cries from your heart that you'd long ago forgotten about. But God hasn't. And these plans that he had for Paul were fulfilled in God's time. And the plans that he has for you will be fulfilled in his time as well. So use your testimony. Don't be afraid to give it, to share it. And to do it for God's glory. Your testimony is a precious thing. Share it with the confidence that God is on your side. Even if the law wasn't on your side, and it is. But even if the law wasn't on your side, God is on your side. And that's what matters. So in conclusion, let's try to be all things to all men for the sake of the gospel without compromising the gospel. Let's share our testimony that we have been saved by the grace of God. And let's trust God that he is our ultimate defense in adversity. He's provided the law in the UK as a means to protect us. But he is our ultimate defense and protector 
and he will bring the plans that he has for you to completion. Philippians 1 verse 6, be in confidence of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a testimony. We thank you for those here that are believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've given us a testimony to share. What a great God we have. And what a great testimony you've given us. That we who once were lost have now been adopted into the family of the Most High. Lord, we thank you that you've made us your children Lord, that we are yours and that you have plans for us. We pray that you'd help us to share our testimonies and the confidence that you're our defense and our shield and our exceeding great reward. We pray that you'd be with us as we meet around your table. We pray that you would help us to focus on the fact that you have given your son for us so that we can live. In Jesus' name, amen.